So we're going to do a medical minute today based on something that Emily asked yesterday. And it's a scary thing. It's about trauma in pregnancy. Uh, first of all, it's really damn common. And that's a sad thing. You know, it's common because of one, people in accidents all the time and minor trauma is a bigger deal in pregnancy. And the other sad part of it is domestic violence actually becomes a lot more common in pregnancy. And that becomes more common as you get closer to delivering. So in third trimester, there's more domestic violence than first trimester. And a lot of it is because of the stress it puts on families. And you know, a lot of it is also displaced aggression against the pregnancy by oftentimes males. Now, we approach resuscitation right, and trauma with the ABCDs and E's. And I want to use that kind of as a basis to talk about the anatomy, physiology, and pathophysiology, because all of those are different in the pregnant trauma patient than they would be in the normal trauma patient, okay? So A, let's talk about airway first. That's the first thing we evaluate in trauma. In pregnant women, the airway actually changes. That's a product of progesterone. So a lot of people, maybe some women in the room, have been pregnant before and they notice that they get a lot stuffier, right? That's because progesterone dilates the blood vessels in the nose and in the back of the throat. And because of that, we'll often say that you have to be really careful if you're inserting nasal trumpets because the bleeding can be really bad if you do that. And also, when you actually try to intubate, there's a lot more redundant soft tissue because of the swelling from the progesterone. So the intubation becomes a lot more difficult in a pregnant lady versus a non-pregnant lady. So breathing is the next thing. And if you can think of this, when you're, when you're pregnant and you've got this big distended abdomen because you're growing a human being inside of you, right? That pushes up on your diaphragm. And also your metabolic demands from pregnancy when you're trying to grow another life are a lot higher. And the product of that is you desaturate very quickly. Be very liberal with supplemental oxygen in pregnant women, okay? Even if they're satting well, put a nasal cannula on them. One, you wanna make sure that you're oxygenating well. And two, one of the biggest risk factors to the fetus is hypoxia. That's one of the major causes of cerebral palsy is hypoxia as a fetus. So if you do have to be in the situation where you're intubating someone who's pregnant, be very liberal with the oxygen, know that it's gonna be a difficult airway. And then last of all, know that they're gonna desaturate quickly because their physiologic reserve is down and also their lungs aren't able to expand as much. Okay. Circulation. So there's a few changes that happen with circulation. And the first one that's really big is that your volumes increase a lot, right? So you've got a lot more fluid that you're pumping through to support that pregnancy. If you actually take blood, you'll find that hemoglobin is lower. That's not because your blood levels are really lower. It's because you've just got a lot more fluid in your blood. Okay. Um, so circulation changes a bit. And finally, the last thing that changes with circulation is you have a lot more blood flow going toward the uterus. That can be a really big issue if there's trauma to the uterus or trauma to the, to the vessels that supply the uterus because they bleed like stink. So D is for disability, right? And D is also for something else, and that's displacement, right? So once you get into the second trimester, once that uterus gets passed around 20 weeks, it can get big enough that it pushes back on the major blood vessels. So it pushes back on your aorta and it pushes back on your vena cava. And that's why after 20, 20 weeks, you really wanna either have ladies in left lateral decubitus almost, right, where you put the pillows under them to make sure that they're leaning a little bit to the left. So you roll that uterus away from the right side, away from the vena cava, and you basically allow blood flow. If you do not do that, basically lay them supine and you've got a big uterus, it can actually press down on the vena cava, reduce blood flow back to the heart, and you can have hypotension. You can have low blood pressures just from that and not from trauma. 
Now let's say you can't put someone in the left lateral decubitus position if they're coding, right? Or if, say, they have left-sided rib fractures or a left broken hip, and you don't want to roll them onto that side. There's another thing you can do is you can just assign someone who basically sits there and they push on the uterus. Their only job is to push the uterus to the left side of the body and allow that blood flow to happen. So sometimes you have to assign someone to just do that for you. E is for exposure, right? We take everything off. You cut clothes, you do everything. E is for also checking everything. And on a pregnant trauma patient, where everything comes in is you really need to not only do a head-to-toe exam, but you also need to do a manual exam into the vagina. You need to find if there's bleeding going on. You need to find if there's rupture of fluids, okay? So we do the ABCs, right? Often as nurses, you're pooling blood from the patient. You're getting us good access. And there's a few other laboratory assessments that you should actually be thinking about in addition to everything else you're doing with trauma. So there's a KB test, so the Clive Howard Betke test test if there's fetal hemoglobin mixed in with your mother's blood cells, right? So it sees if there's baby's blood circulating with your blood. And that could be really important because a KB can kind of tip us off that there's bleeding occurring around the pregnancy. The other test is an RH factor, which I think most people would know about. If there's an RH negative woman and she's got an RH positive pregnancy, that could predispose to basically losing future pregnancies. It could predispose the immune system to becoming, in a way, allergic to, to future pregnancies that are RH positive factors. So you have to draw an RH, and if a mother is RH negative, we oftentimes just give Rogam in the, in the case of trauma, try to prevent that autoimmunization from happening, okay? The last one is a uh, fibrinogen test. And fibrinogen is one of those things that's really important in stopping bleeding. And what this does is it actually gives you a hint if there might be occult bleeding going on, such as placental abruption, okay? And we're gonna talk a lot more about placental abruption. Now, when you approach a pregnant trauma patient, there's huge physiologic changes that happen from the day that you get pregnant to the day that you deliver a baby, right? Um, in the first trimester, think about them almost like you think about a normal tra trauma patient because the uterus is really down low in the pelvis. It's not exposed yet, right? Uh, also, the, the infant isn't viable, so there's not a lot you're going to do heroically to try to save an infant who's 10 weeks old. There's a real big break that happens when you get to around 22 to 23 weeks. That infant suddenly becomes viable, and that uterus is now peeking up above the belly button. So you have to think about it because there's, one, the anatomy is different. That uterus is now exposed. It can be injured. And then, two, you actually have two patients instead of one patient. Okay? Now, oftentimes, when you have two instead of one, you have to concentrate on mom first. That's got to be the priority because if you save mom, you're going to save the infant. Because that uterus is now exposed, there's a whole different number of injuries that you have to think about with a big uterus. And those injuries are, one, a placental abruption. And placental abruption is when the placenta and the uterine wall kind of come apart. And that can be a big source of bleeding and a big source of mortality for both the mother and for the fetus. Okay? Abruption sadly comes in two forms. It comes in a very, really readily apparent form where the bleeding is actually visible uh, out the vagina, right? So you'll pick it up while doing your exam. And there's a whole other occult form where the bleeding actually occurs, but it's up high in the placenta and it actually doesn't have any physical manifestations out low. The manifestations sometimes are contractions, sometimes there's tenderness and pain, and then the other thing you look for is fetal distress. So let's say you have a pregnant woman who's in a, just a low mechanism MVC, 20 mile per hour wearing her seatbelt, gets a little bump. Oftentimes, if they have a viable fetus, we observe these ladies for anywhere between four to six hours. 
And the reason is because even with some minor trauma, sometimes we'll have abruption that starts occurring, and sometimes we'll see that that baby starts getting into distress, and sometimes those progress into needing an emergency section. Okay? Um, that bleeding could also be really severe. So in a major trauma, that can be a major cause of bleeding. The other thing that we think about in people who have had C-section, you can actually have the uterus rupture if there's a significant trauma, right? So the uterus rupture is baby's now in the abdominal cavity. Uterine rupture is usually a pretty catastrophic diagnosis. It usually means that there's death of the fetus and oftentimes death of the mother just because the trauma is so severe and the bleeding associated with it is so severe. The third thing that happens with either placental abruption or can happen with major trauma where there's shearing of the placenta away from the wall is what's called an amniotic fluid embolus. And an amniotic fluid embolus is when amniotic fluid actually enters into the maternal circulation. It goes up toward the heart, it gets pumped into the lungs and can be much more severe than a pulmonary embolism. It's a major cause of maternal mortality uh, in trauma or during a really traumatic delivery. So it's another thing to think about with trauma and with respiratory distress in a female who comes in and is in their third trimester. Imaging always comes up with trauma patients and everyone doesn't want to expose a fetus to radiation, right? The, the big thing that you have to realize is if they're bad trauma, that radiation is a minor risk compared to the other things that might be going on. If there's a significant enough mechanism, if they're tentative palpation, we really should be doing CT scans to make sure there's not any of those other complications. The last thing we're gonna talk about is the most difficult thing, and this is potentially the most difficult case that any one of us would have to deal with, and that's called a perimortem C-section. So a perimortem C-section happens when there's a trauma, and when mother comes in and she loses pulses and she's coding. What you have to do at that time is a really difficult decision, is you have to decide to do an emergency section. And that emergency section isn't only to try to save the infant, in a way it's trying to save the mother as well. First of all, trauma patient, pregnant, viable fetus, let's say greater than 25, 30, 30 weeks, big abdomen when she comes in the room. When she's coding, you have to make the decision very quickly to perform the C-section. Okay? Because in a pregnant woman, both because of physiology, they get hypoxic quicker and there's death both to the fetus and also there's brain death to the mother faster than it would be in a normal person, which is five minutes. So typically if you're coding and you're not getting good response, you have to make the decision to do a C-section within the first three to five minutes. Okay? If there's a coding female, it's prep the belly and then it's a big cut. It's all the way from the xiphoid process down to the pubic synthesis. So it's basically the whole abdomen that you're doing. Afterwards, you're getting into the uterus and you're taking the fetus out as quickly as you can. And the surprising thing is that only not only improves the chance that you might save the fetus, it actually improves the chance that you might save the mother. Because once you get that fetus out, there's less compression on the great vessels, okay? There's less blood that needs to be shunted from mom to, mom to that fetus. And both of those could pretend a better prognosis than the mother, okay? God forbid we ever have to be in one of those situations. So really scary subject matter, really, really important changes in anatomy and physiology, and just all over something that you guys should know about and think about. Uh, I guess God forbid you have one of those patients that rolls in and they need our aid. Any questions? Why is such, such a big incision? Because you really want to get access to the uterus. It's not a teeny little make it pretty. It's a we need to get access to that whole area as quick as we can, and we need to get that baby out as fast as we can. 
you know, and we usually cut right in the middle, right where the linea alba is. It's a little less vascular in that middle, uh, and, and really we just want to expose everything. Okay? The other thing that's important to tell your, your patients who may have been pregnant patients who come in after minor MVCs is you want to ask them how they wear their seatbelt, right? Because there's a right way and a wrong way to wear your seatbelt when you're in your third trimester. Um, a lot of people will just put it over their abdomen, just like a normal seatbelt, and really they have to make sure they're tucking that seatbelt under the abdomen, right on their hip bones, okay? And then the other strap that goes around, you want to make sure they lift that over the abdomen and under the breast like that. Or, you know, so it's not basically going right over the abdomen, but it's coming up a little further. At the end, you want to have as little as the seatbelt on your abdomen as possible, and that's the right way to wear a seatbelt when you're pregnant. That decreases the chance where if you're in an accident, it doesn't put direct pressure on your uterus and hence on your placenta. It decreases the chance that you'll have an abruption with minor trauma. Any other questions? If you have a pregnant mom come in with respiratory distress and her cardiac was fine, how mm -hmm. long could you intubate her? And so, yes. One thing that you look at is why are they short of breath? Okay. So one of the things that increases is risk of pulmonary embolism in pregnancy. So one of the big things I'd be thinking about is if you have a mother coming in and she's really short of breath and you get an x-ray and her lungs look good, no pneumonia, etc. I think pulmonary embolism. There's also cardiomyopathies that occur in pregnant women that don't occur in, in normal women. So pregnancy is scary as hell for, <laughs> uh, for a lot of things, right? There's a lot of stuff that can go bad. But definitely you can, you can intubate a pregnant woman, right? I'd one, approach it like it's going to be a difficult airway. Pre-oxygenate like hell. Know they're going to deset quickly. The other thing I would likely do if I was intubating a pregnant lady is I wouldn't intubate them totally supine, right? So I wouldn't lay them down all the way flat because when you lay them down all the way flat, that uterus starts pushing up on the diaphragm. You take away a lot of your physiologic airspace. So I'd intubate them probably around 30 degrees or something else to try to make sure that the diaphragm can expand as much as possible, especially in the vacuum, et cetera. Yeah? And how long can they sustain intubation, though, to, before there's damage to the baby? Well, so if you're oxygenating well and you don't have hypotension, et cetera, it's, it's basically the baby can do very well. And you do have cases where if something happens to mom and someone has a prolonged intubation, and his baby can come up fine as long as they get enough oxygen and enough blood flow. The interesting thing is the blood flow to the uterus is different than other blood flow. So, for example, to the brain, to the kidneys, to a lot of organs in the body, we have what's called auto-regulation, right? Whereas if your blood, your blood pressure is a little lower, your blood vessels will constrict or they'll dilate to get enough blood to that organ. That doesn't exist with the uterus. So there's no auto-regulation. So that means that if there's hypotension in the mother, there's hypotension in that fetus, and there's potential, potentially you know, increased chance for fetal demise or cerebral palsy. So hypotension in pregnant women is really, really bad. The other thing is you don't want to give pressures if you don't have to do a pregnant lady, okay? Because I'd much rather volume resuscitate. Exactly. If you give vasopressors, it actually shunts blood away from the fetus, potentially causes too much vasoconstriction because there's not good autoregulation, right? Those are dumb blood vessels. They don't really <laughs> act as smart as other blood vessels in the body. So you really want to try to avoid pressures. Of course, if someone's in the point where they're going toward potentially death or dying or severe shock, then you might have to come to that bridge and do do vasopressors, but really you should try to avoid them if you can. Okay. Other questions? Okay, long, long medical minute. Thank you for your patience. Okay. No worries.